Greetings from the Golden Isles, Georgia, for episode seven of I Quit Blank and Started Running, a podcast featuring people who turn to running as a way to overcome a particular challenge in their lives. Each week I share inspiring stories of where they started, what it was that made them want to change, how running factored in, and where they are today. I am your host, Antonia de Heinrich, and today I would like to address something that has been on my mind for several weeks. Suzanne, who was supposed to be my guest today, had a family emergency, so we postponed our interview. That said, I hesitated to put together an episode just for the sake of publishing one. However, as I was listening to Brene Brown's book, Daring Greatly, on my run this morning, everything she said convinced me to share my perspective. This cheery music seems oddly inappropriate now that I come to think of what I want to talk about today. Here goes. My already simmering emotional turmoil was kicked into high gear when Ahmad Aubrey was shot on an afternoon run in February, then really took off after George Floyd's murder. My mother once wrote in a birthday card years ago, among other things, that I am intolerant of intolerance. Nothing could ring more true at this moment than her words. I am guilty of standing by and letting time heal the wounds. I've been good at shoving the issue of racism to a back corner of my mind and letting others take action because what could I do? Well, enough is enough. I created this podcast to share my passion for running and how wonderful it can be for us as individuals, not only for physical fitness, but also for our mental health. I personally am running more than ever right now to process my overwhelm of thoughts and emotions. But running is also much bigger than that. It's a sport that brings people together and therefore a powerful platform for positive change. My goal is to eventually collaborate with larger running organizations, but for now, I'm making the first step by speaking my truth on my podcast. Side note, I would like to preface that while I want to talk about racism today, which is not only sensitive, but also far-reaching, I really want to steer clear from politics. In this particular episode, I do not want to address police brutality or our criminal justice system, gun laws, inequality in general, or even immigration or the Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter controversy for that matter. I would like to focus our attention specifically on Black Americans and why they feel unsafe going about their everyday lives, such as running. I'm a white female, and I'm sure the case can be made that I should walk to my own back while I'm running. But today isn't about me or the dangers white females face when they're out doing their thing. I guess I feel the need to clarify and define all this before I dive in, because I want to avoid confusion, interference, and above all, distraction from the topic at hand. Let's dive in, shall we? As I implied earlier, I'm spending some time taking care of some personal stuff at my parents' place in St. Simons Island, Georgia. Ahmaud Aubrey's murder happened less than 15 miles from here. Not only is it my proximity to his scene of his death, but it happened while he was doing something he loved and something I love. For those of you who don't know what happened, let me quickly give you a play-by-play. Ahmad, or as his friend called him, Maud, was 25 years old, a 2012 Brunswick High School graduate, and had enrolled at South Georgia Technical College to pursue a career as an electrician. He loved to run and did so almost daily. Sunday, February 23rd, 2020, wasn't any different. He was running his usual loop from his mother's house across Highway 17 into Satilla Shores, a quiet subdivision with tree-lined streets on the Satilla River. 
Security footage shows Maude stopping on the lawn of 220 Satilla Drive at 1.04 p.m., a bungalow under construction with the garage wide open. I'm going to quote a June 18 Runner's World article here written by Mitchell S. Jackson. Ahmad, dressed in light-colored low-top Nikes, a white t-shirt, and khaki cargo shorts, loafs on the lawn for a moment before drifting into the building. The security camera records him inside the home, a brightened skeleton of beams and plywood and stacks of sheetrock and piping and wire. There are boxes of materials scattered about and a small forklift pushed in a corner. Maud doesn't touch any of those things. He looks around, gazes beyond the frame of the camera toward the river and behind the house. Maybe he wonders what the home will look like when it's finished. Maybe he conjures an image of a family who could afford to live in a place so close to the water. End quote. Please note that Maud wasn't the first to enter the construction site. There was a nice-looking white couple as well as another young black male who looked nothing like Maud, caught on camera. To Maud's murderers, it seemed like all black people looked the same. Gregory McMichael, a former police officer, deemed Maud suspicious and felt the need not only to call 911, but to grab his son and take up the pursuit themselves, armed with a shotgun and a handgun. They followed Maud for six minutes, while Maud was trying his best to dodge the white pickup, until they finally cut him off. In an attempt to get away, Travis shoots Maud in the chest at close range. Maud, still stand, standing, tries to pry the gun away from Travis when he fires a second shot that gashes Maud's wrist. As Maud, now fighting for his life, still wrestles for the shotgun, Travis shoots him a third time, this time point blank, wounding Maud's chest again before Maud staggers away and falls face down in the middle of Satilla Drive. The reason there's so much detail on Maud's murder is because all of it was caught on camera revealing not only the entire scene, but also his murderer's identities. Maud was 25 years old. He ran for his enjoyment and mental release. He was an unarmed black man who was hunted down and killed like an animal two miles from his mother's house. This cannot happen anymore. If the McMichaels ran sometimes, maybe they wouldn't be as angry and self-righteous. I mean that because I speak from experience. Before I ran, I smoked. Back to Brene Brown's Daring Greatly, and I quote, Americans today are more debt-ridden, obese, medicated, and addicted than we've ever seen. We numb the pain that comes from feeling inadequate and less than. She continues, the most powerful need for numbing seems to come from combinations of all three, shame, anxiety, and disconnection. Shame often leads to desperation, and reactions to this desperate need to escape from isolation and fear can run the gamut from numbing to addiction, depression, self-injury, eating disorders, bullying, violence, and suicide. The reason I'm quoting Brene is that the very reason why I want to keep policy and our justice and legal system out of this episode. Her, Her book focuses on vulnerability and describes vulnerability as, and I quote, the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy, and creativity. While I'm not doing a podcast about vulnerability, I will leave that to an expert like Brene, I do want to touch on empathy. Empathy is what distinguishes us from wild animals or predators. Practicing empathy makes us less afraid, less defensive, and more understanding. Understanding is really the basis of humanity. Let me say this again. Practicing empathy makes us less afraid, less defensive, and more understanding. 
Understanding is the basis of humanity. What does this have to do with running, you ask? Everything. Not only does running release endorphins, which helps with stress relief, frustration, anger, sadness, you name it. This is where speaking from experience comes in. I had all of those feelings when I quit smoking. Boy, was I a joy to be around. I still have these feelings, and when I do, I go run. I know I said this wasn't going to be about me, but I have to share because it works for me and it must work for others, which is why I'm doing an entire podcast around it. If you're less consumed with feelings of stress, frustration, fear, and sadness, you can open up to feelings of empathy and understanding. What running also does, it builds community. To quote Mitchell Jackson again, though the demographics of runners have become more diverse over the last 50 years, jogging by and large remains a sport and pastime pitched to the privileged whites. Why is that? And I quote, Black, uh, blacks, of the bra- blacks of the Great Migration were redlined into ever more depressed sections of northern and western cities, areas where the streets were less and less safe to walk, much less run. Black people who do run today may still not feel safe regardless of their neighborhood. And that's what needs to change. My message today is white runners support black runners. Whether it just be standing by them, raising awareness, finding out what they need. I don't have the answers, but at least I'm trying to speak out because being silent is being complicit. Maybe we can start with dedication runs. With the future of racing so uncertain, at least for the midterm, maybe we can participate in a virtual race for the greater good. Take two of my podcast guests as an example. Jake ran a half marathon yesterday on behalf of his friend's three-year-old son, Milo, to raise money for his Hodgkin's lymphoma treatment. Miguel pledged to break his one-mile personal record, PR, to fundraise for BLM. We can all pitch in in this way. There are a number of organizations that are hosting virtual races to raise funds and awareness. I personally am running with Mod tomorrow, Tuesday, June 23rd, and every 23rd of each month, the 2.23 miles in memory of his date of death on February 23rd. I'm also running a virtual 5K on Saturday, June 27th, where all proceeds go to BLM. That's just this week, and I will continue to seek out races like these, and I encourage you to do the same. My goal is to continue producing uplifting content, but I can no longer remain silent on racism. Maybe I'll have an episode titled, I Quit Being Angry Because I Started Running, or I Quit Running Alone and Started Running with a Running Buddy, or better yet, I Was Able to Quit Being Afraid and Started Running Again. How awesome would it be if running could change the world? Or maybe it already is. Thank you so much for being here for this solo episode of I Quit Blank and Started Running. I understand that racism is a controversial topic, and I am beyond grateful to you for hanging in there to hear me out. We have a long way to go, but the glass is beginning to crack and change is starting to happen. I believe it, I feel it, and I want to do my part. As for the authors referenced in this episode, check out Brene Brown at brenebrown.com, B as in boy, R-E-N-E, brown as in the color.com, as well as Mitchell Jackson's June 18th article in Runner's World titled 12 Minutes and a Life. If you've had challenges, obstacles in your life that you have conquered by getting into running, whether related to racism or other, we would love to hear your story. To enter, just email us at quitxstartrunning at gmail.com 
with a brief introduction and an overview of your story. We look forward to receiving your submissions. Some final wrap-up notes before we go. In case you're looking for me in other corners of the World Wide Web, the best way to find me is on Facebook and Instagram under my name, Antonia De Heinrich. That is A-N-T-O-N-I-A-D-E-H-E-I-N-R-I-C-H and on the I Quit X and Started Running Facebook page. To subscribe to this podcast, simply go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or whichever your favorite podcast listening platform may be. Thank you so much for joining me today, and I look forward to welcoming you to my next episode on Monday, June 28th. Until then, my friends, quit whatever you're doing and start running. <laughs>